0: I got to go into the socials now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> All right. We got a good blooper reel. All right. Um, yeah. yeah I, we,
1: we, we are not going to be um, highly paid actors ever. Uh <laughs> Got a beard and it's
2: looking something fierce. Having beers, with one peers And talking rap careers. Reflecting on the years, connecting on the tears. Shipwreck, faith ain't always as appears. I'm bringing you fresh music, I'm bringing fresh ideas. I'm bringing you the dudes in the indie music beers. Chilling after the shows and talking about the pain with people who learned how to face it and be sane. Sipping on a brew, doing interviews. No topics off the table, but we focus on breakthroughs. So pick up your feet, we're gonna put it in check. You're listening to brews, beards, and shipwrecks. One, two, do one two one two my kicks do royal ruckus on the scene just two one now We got the bruise, we got the beards taste the abuse for your ears to hear Do one two one two my kicks don't royal ruckus on the scene just two one now We got the brews, we
1: got the beards taste the abuse for your ears to hear Welcome to this episode of Bruise, Beards and Shipwrecks This is Jamie Bennett also known as Chun Jay from Royal Ruckus and I'm here with my boy dramatic vagabond
0: man how you been bro man i've been fantastic you know enjoying uh just you know working yeah (laughs) Yeah. studio here so you know things are in disarray but other than that you know just trying to you know make it work better and you know uh make room for more records (laughs) (laughs) that's
1: sometimes how you got to do it you know well things uh things here on the podcast have been pretty good. We've been episode uh episoding. There's a new verb for yeah. you. Uh we've been episoding some other conversations that I've had as well as uh, bringing in some fresh voices and I am really excited about the person we have today. You know, we we have brought in uh Dr. Nicole Rocus who has a PhD in history. She's also a a trauma informed coach. Uh, Among a variety of other things that we'll tell you about in just a minute. And then she'll also unpack for you in the episode. But gosh, I'm excited because what is our last name of this show? Shipwrecks. (laughs) That's right. And it seems to me that traumatic experiences are a kind of shipwreck. And we have many people uh, who have come on our show and shared their own experiences. Uh, their own difficulties and so and Siri is talking to us um Siri is trying to get in on the conversation and share her experiences so I don't know I I had a good time with with this conversation uh it, we we basically we got to catch up with Nicole here a little bit about what she's doing as an author uh what she does as a podcaster but we also got to learn a little bit about her thoughts on trauma on creativity um On despondency and how all of that tie ties into our experience of and relationship with time
0: as human beings and i enjoy the conversation as well and it was uh yeah it was just super good and i think you know this time of year being able to have um conversations about trauma and and healing um within trauma and having someone just come alongside you i don't want to give too much away but yeah it it was it was great dude it was fantastic it was it was fun and heavy at the same time you know yeah yeah
1: i i totally agree well let's let's get into it let's roll the episode yeah boy our guest today has a phd in history she's an author a podcaster and a certified trauma-informed coach She's from Wisconsin, but she lives in Hamilton, Ontario, and has a beagle named Felix. Her book, Time and Despondency, Regaining the Present in Faith and Life, as well as her podcast, Time Eternal, which explores the beautiful and difficult aspects of time on this earth, both have encouraged and informed many people, myself included. So I am honored to welcome to the show, Dr. Nicole Rokas.
3: Hi, I'm honored to be here as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So great to have you. Um, you! How's everything been going up there in the in the cold land of Canada?
3: It's cold. We had a we had a big cold snap
1: this weekend. So
3: snow on the ground and bundled up, snow pants, boots. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, d- down here in Florida, it was like seventy-one, and uh, my friends and I were all looking for our jackets uh, to walk from the car to the the Mexican restaurant. Aww. So.
3: Sounds really difficult.
1: <laughs> well, we're, we're really glad to have you. And I think we just jump right into it today because we're all sitting around here sipping on what appears to be some beers. Yep. Um, but I'm not really sure. So I guess uh, we'll start with you, Nicole. What What's in your glass?
3: I am drinking. Um, it is beer. I'm drinking uh, Jam Up The Mash is like a dry mm. sour, I think dry hopped okay. sour. Um, and it's from uh, a place called Collective Arts here in Hamilton, which is okay. a small brewery, craft brewery. It's probably like the most well known craft brewery in this area. And it's called Collective Arts because on the side of their um beer cans, they feature like new and upcoming artists, um, like their work. So like the beer art or the can art or whatever. And every six months they switch, um, artists, they, they switch like the paintings or whatever. So this particular bottle or the, the can, like it may not look the same in a few months. Um, right. So, uh,
1: that's that's
3: awesome. And if you're an artist, they, they do take submissions, so you can go to Collective Arts, and it, it it it's in Canada, but you can submit from the states as well.
0: Wow,
1: that's amazing. We we both love uh, you know, love tracking down local craft beer places. Now I'm curious about them because you said they do can are they uh, are they pretty widely distributed? Or are they more regional there in?
3: Definitely like in this part of Ontario, they're pretty widely distributed. You can find them okay. um in like I don't know, alcohol works differently here because like it's taxed and all that. You can find them in the LCBO, which is like the um alcohol store in Ontario like the state regulated alcohol store where you go to get alcohol. So um okay. but it, it's in like the craft brewery section. But you can also go, like, they have an actual brewery where you can go, like, see it and, and pick it up there.
1: Nice. I, I used to spend quite a bit of time in, in breweries. I don't spend as much time these days. Um, I am currently drinking a Guinness Zero. <laughs> I have been talking up the Guinness Zero, and I think this is the first episode that I've had it on. Um, one of the things when I decided to take a year off of beer, or off of drinking... Um, was I thought there would never be Guinness in my life. And I was very sad about that. And then I discovered there is such a thing now as Guinness Zero. And I even found, so far I've only found one bar that serves it. But there is a bar in my area that serves Guinness Zero. Oh, is the
3: zero So the Zero is for non-alcoholic?
1: Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I don't know how they do it. But uh, I have not done a taste test side by side because I haven't been drinking alcohol. But um, it tastes exactly how I remember Guinness tasting. Uh, but I haven't had one since New Year's Eve, so oh. um, I'm not sure. Is it? Yeah, so um, I, I can't remember if there's a widget in the can. I'll pay attention when I open the next one if there's a widget. But um, to me, it feels like it's got the same consistency as as uh, any Guinness you would pour from a, from a can. Obviously, it'd be better if it was on tap. Um, I have not found Guinness Zero on tap yet, though.
0: Sounds like you need to get yourself a keg, my man.
1: <laughs> so how about you man what are you drinking
0: um so i'm drinking an ipa and it's a hazy ipa and it's just a local brewery called pono brewing and this one's called shadow work i'll try to get it closer so you can kind of see it's got like a little kitty and then the shadows. <laughs> and it's, nice it's super uh florally but like tropical as well um they use uh this experimental hop called HBC 9326 Okay. And Mackenzie. So it's yeah, it's different than I've ever tasted. I mean it still has that nice full mouthfeel you get from uh um Hazy's, but it's got a lot of like tropical and floral things going on, so it's delicious. Nice.
1: Well, it it looks delicious. Uh it's, it was actually kind of nice because I didn't necessarily remind Nicole that we had um, you know, a beer tasting sesh essentially in in each episode. So I'm so glad that she came prepared. Um I was just gonna hound her about her favorite beer if she didn't have one, but here we go.
3: I'm actually kind of new to beer drinking. Are you? Um I'm I'm more of a wine person. Yeah. Okay. But um like there's I have I I recently moved to this well recently a year and a half ago I moved to Hamilton from Toronto and my friends here have more, you know, are more into beers and craft breweries and stuff like that. So okay. I have learned a bit about beer and and found some ones that I I really like, um, like this one. So, yeah, I think in the past, I probably would have been like, oh, I don't have a favorite beer because I don't drink any, sure. Um, sure. but I I actually had an answer and I was really <laughs> glad. I was like, I'm a beer person.
1: No, I, I love I know it. Know what to say,
3: I, and it's even from a craft brewery, so I like I look really cool.
1: You scored all the points. Yeah, <laughs> so, you, you know it's like, it's like Jeopardy. You know you you get points throughout the throughout the show. You know uh, you've started strong. Uh,
3: <laughs> okay, What kind of
1: wine? Do you mean? Well, yeah, that's that that was what I was going to ask.
3: What no, wine? wine. You... I am I am a red wine person. Um, I prefer Cabernet Sauvignon. That's pretty, I don't know, um I guess my, my favorite. And I'm not I'm not super picky because I usually go for the cheap okay. stuff. Okay. Um, but I do have a favorite um vineyard in in my native in my native land of Wisconsin. There's it's a there's home. a winery called Wollershimes. And um, it's it's a winery that is owned and managed by, like, some distant second cousins of mine. Oh, wow. Um, and they have a a white wine called Prairie Fume. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it is very good. And I try, when I'm in Wisconsin, I try to, like, get a bottle or two and bring it back over the border just to, like, sample with friends just to share it with them. It's, it's a good, especially in the summertime, it's a great
1: wine.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Super good. Usually, only yeah. most most times it's usually French, so to see someone do something stateside is super cool.
3: Oh, I like local, and I mean, I I like live in the Niagara region, so right. there's a lot of like local wineries here. Um, I definitely prefer local when I have the chance.
1: That's awesome. Well, yeah. I I wanted to um, dive into how we met um which was ultimately at a podcast creator no well not really how we met i wanted how i know about you was first online uh and then ultimately we met at a podcast creators conference and if i remember correctly at that conference you were even uh speaking on like you were on a panel of experts right um That's how it. to how to create a, a good podcast so what led Yeah, you I
3: shared to that? what I know. I shared what I know. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but yeah, um, we. I think we met there. We had some good conversations there, and then I, I subsequently started Facebook stalking, um, your wife because she's amazing <laughs> and cool, and I've not met her yet, and I want to someday.
1: Well, I, I do hope that happens. Um,
3: but so, Polina, if you're listening. <laughs> You're really cool.
1: <laughs> she she will love to hear that. Um she she was actually pretty excited that we were having you on. Um you know, I almost thought she needed to come on too, but uh I'm I'm curious though because the the decision to make a podcast is not not necessarily an easy one, and to have a podcast oh past, you know, three or four episodes takes commitment. So, I'm kind of curious like what led to you starting one?
3: Um, I, I don't know. So I, I started time eternal, um, when I was like getting to the tail end of my doctoral work. And I knew that I was not going to be going on with academia in in any strict sense. Um, and I, I had done a dissertation about, um, uh, sort of like like perceptions of time in um reformation germany and a lot of it had to do with like how people um, like people had like a very spiritual sense of time back then um they they thought of time in a very like spiritual and theological sense and i knew i wasn't really going to be going on with that kind of work um but i wanted a way to continue thinking about time and i especially wanted a way to sort of explore some of the themes that came up when I was doing my dissertation work in an orthodox setting and like in the setting of like lived experience and not just like abstract historical research.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, And some and Father Ted Periscopolis, who also has a a podcast on ancient, I think his podcast is like one of the longest running Um, podcast just it's just he 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 does his sermons like i sermon or something like that okay um he i was working with him at the time in my day job and he was like you'd be a really good podcaster you should contact ancient faith and tell them your idea." so i did and they um worked with me and and i i started that um and it was a really good way to like bridge my doctoral work with like life Life after academia, which can be a really hard shift for people. Sure. Um, but for it really helps smooth over that transition.
1: Yeah. So w- would you say like like uh so one of the things we know about you is that um your understanding of uh of of reality, of of history, of life is is heavily informed by how people relate to time uh in in some sense and you you seem to, like, that just keeps coming up a lot. And, like, when I went to mm-hmm. your website, it's also, like, within, like, the Q&A and stuff. Um, and so it seems to be something you keep coming back to. I'm wondering, at what point did this kind of, like, wake up within you? Uh, was it during that doc- those doctoral studies? Or was this, is this something that goes back uh, even farther?
3: Um... Yeah, I never know how to answer that question. Um because on the one hand, in in a sense, I've I've always been pretty time conscious time conscious.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> um uh and time conscience. Time time <laughs> conscience with an N because I've I've always like placed like I've always had like a sort of internal I, I've always felt time as kind of a weight, like a moral weight. Okay. And 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 like been been sort of very time conscious um i was raised in a home with where like multiple people had adhd and one of the, one of the i do not have adhd that i that i know of i don't i don't really think i fit the criteria but like one of the symptoms of adhd is something called time blindness where you frequently like lose track of time and i have i don't know maybe as like a coping mechanism for living with people that had time blindness I became like time hypervigilant okay. <laughs> and like sort of like in sometimes in some ways like the timekeeper of of like okay we got to go here now and, and okay. we can't be late for this and da 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 um and I have I developed like a very keen sense of anxiety with regard to time um so in a sense like I've I've always been preoccupied with time I've always been preoccupied with like mortality and losing time and not having endless amounts of time in my life um or with the people that I love. Yeah. But I I would say it wasn't until like my doctorate where I really stepped back and was like I wonder why that is. And I wonder how people in the past thought about time. And I wonder what our faith has to do with time and yeah. what like how uh theocentric view of reality interacts with our perception of time and does that change things um right and i and and so i yeah i um that then i i ended up doing my dissertation on um perce- perceptions of the year as a unit of time in 16th century germany and and part of that came about is like because i I kind of like had been spending so much time within that specialty and then i suddenly wondered like what did they think about time mm-hmm. like we assume they thought the same things because we assume that like time is this static universal thing oh but when you look at historical sources in the way sort of when you read things between the lines like just ordinary historical sources or even works of literature and you read between the lines and you see different references to time and temporality, you realize, oh, they have some different reference points. Yeah. Yeah. And they thought slightly different about, about it all. Um, and and I ended up making that my dissertation. And, and that was, I think, really the, the conscious um, start of, of me realizing, like, I, I'm really fascinated by time yeah. and
1: yeah.
3: how it basically intersects with everything in life.
1: Is there anything, I mean, what's something that sticks out for you that's like a contrast between how they might have approached time versus how we tend to in our modern society and culture?
3: So, you know, one one thing um, that, that really um, blows my mind um, is that back in the day, and we're talking High Middle Ages into late Middle Ages, when the year started, depending on where you lived in Europe. So in some in some areas of your in some countries, the new year was on Christmas. In other countries, the new year was on um, uh Easter. Okay. In some places, the New Year started on the Feast of Annunciation, March 25th. Hmm byzantine emperor empire it was september 1st that that kind of like fell fell away by the high middle ages and stuff but like in the high middle ages there was like various new years sure um didn't matter a whole lot because there wasn't a lot of like legal like there wasn't a, a huge need for like standardization okay but um by by like the 16th century, all of that became became more standardized, and like the start of the new year um, legally became fixed on January 1st.
0: Okay.
3: Um, which I don't know, like I don't know why, but that it kind of blows my mind that like different countries can have different New Years at <laughs> sure. the same time. Right and like be so close to one another like geographically and have like trade relations with one another um and and like not and know that oh yeah the other country like isn't for part of the year you are in a different year
0: yeah
3: um And then, and then like historians, you know, nowadays when historians talk about like medieval, medievalists and stuff are talking about what a year, like just talking about in such and such a year, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Well, like, was it in our 1492 or his 1492? (laughs) Sure. What was the date? Right. Mm No. And we assume these categories just existed forever, but they didn't. Yeah. And they're fluid and they, they change. And, um, that just like, it just blew my, blew my mind.
1: Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm used to thinking of it, uh, more in terms, not of the years, but like the dates. So, you know, the Gregorian calendar where the Pope updated the calendar, uh, we, we just kind of assume we were all like on the same calendar. Um, and we really weren't. And even the American colonies when they were being established were on the older calendar um, and had to transition Or in
3: the case of Germany in the case of Germany or at at the time the the Holy Roman Empire Yeah that that was the only country in Europe to adhere to both civil calendars simultaneously because there were there were Protestant territories and there were Catholic territories. So you'll find letters with two dates at the time. Oh
0: yeah Wow. Or
3: you'll find calendar like their calendars. It's kind of like some modern orth- like Orthodox calendars today.
0: Yeah. Um,
3: for churches that follow the old calendar, you'll have like the, the old calendar date and and like the civil calendar date. Um, but y- you would have you would have to buy a calendar that had both dates, and it, it's like it was both dates at wow. once. Sure. And like for a person nowadays, I think to think that fluidly about time yeah is is like we can't we can't our brains don't go in that direction
1: right right so, I, I feel like anytime I talk to anybody about the fact that there are a multiplicity of calendars in history um and and even in use today, I mean um there there are some you know old believer orthodox who use a different numbering system uh you know the Coptic Orthodox numbering system has a different uh set of dates right like dating from instead of christ time it's dating from the end of the persecution or or you know there's like different ways even
3: like the the jews today like i have i have friends who are secular jews in on rosh hashanah they'll they'll sometimes put like the year of creation like happy five thousand three hundred whatever wow rosh hashanah and and like it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing to me, you know, that, and we kind of are all like as human, as each single human being, we're like a, we each have like our own calendar yeah. within us yeah. that is completely unique and, and, and like not to jump the gun, but like this kind of gets into tra- to trauma, which is where I'm spending a lot of my, my time in writing these days is like. We, we each are like this collection of memories and anniversaries and dates and reference points inside of us. Right. That is wholly unique.
0: Yeah.
3: And, um, and, and we move through the year, like we all on the surface, it all looks like we're following the same calendar, but yep. internally, like, we're, we're all following this highly unique calendar. And, just like in the in the in 16th century germany where you could have two dates um when you've been through really difficult life experiences or whatever you could come to these days where it's like it's two dates in one it's it's mm-hmm. christmas in 2022 but it's also christmas in 1999 when this when this really horrendous tragedy happened in my family on christmas or um you know any date can can ha- have these like dual yeah
0: yeah yeah
3: can, can be almost two days in
0: one. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and it's, it's crazy too to even think about time because it's like I think Ethiopia is like eight years behind us. So like for them, it's like.
3: Yeah, I was going to bring up the Ethiopians. Yeah. It's
0: like, oh, <laughs> there's even more like layers to that, but but even thinking about talking about time, you know, it's like you know you have what Chronos and then Kairos, right? So you have the quantification and then the qualification. You know the you know the quantity of time and then the quality of time and I, i've always loved that concept of of kairos as far as the quality you know mm.
1: you know one of the things that uh occurred to me too when you were talking about the um the idea that we all kind of have this internal calendar i was thinking about for for me and for my siblings uh you know one of the pivotal moments in our in our lives was uh, when our father died and like symbolically his age and all of that has become like a powerful chronological bit for for us and so like for me it was really when I turned 37 uh, which was how old he was when he died things felt internally very weird for me and when when I passed, you know, the amount of time that he had been alive in my own life, I went, you know, what what do I do now? Um,
3: <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of like the GPS when you're when you're on like a newly constructed road that's not yet in the GPS system, and it's like yeah. you're just in this weird Bermuda Triangle of like the where's the path? Yeah,
0: from? yeah, yeah. Well, so, I mean, that- I'm I'm curious. Oh, you go ahead, Nomadic. I'm just going to say. Um... I mean, that's the thing, because around this time, it's like, you know, my wife's father died um, in 2008. No, two, end of 2007, I believe. Mm. Um, and he was in his 40s, you know. And so for us kind of creeping that, it you do kind of get that sense of like, like Jamie was saying, like, what now? You know, but even that loss still like... Will affect my wife, and sometimes she doesn't even realize what's going on. And all of a sudden, it's like, "Oh, oh this is why I'm feeling this way." Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. I I wonder too. Like, on a big enough timeline, we all we all experience many of the same things, um, but you know, the way they're experienced or you know are are unique to each each person. Um, you know, some people. Uh, even within the same family can go through the same thing but have quite a different experience of that so i'm and 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 also uh we have you've connected time with despondency in much of what you've talked about and so i wonder if you could kind of maybe just take a minute to explore like how that how time feeds into that feeling of a loss of hope or direction for so many people.
3: Yeah. So, so because like I have had this, you know, this fascination with time, um I went in the early days of my podcast, I I wanted like Lent was coming up, the first Lent that I had a podcast. I was like, "Oh, I'd like to just do a series throughout Lent and just follow a topic for like a few episodes." And the topic that came to me was, um, despondency or the Greek, um, the Greek concept of akivia or asidia which I use the English word despondency cause I think it's more resonant, um, than the Latinized word asidia. Sure. But, um, so, but, but because it was like, because my, my podcast is all about time, I was like, well, I guess I'm gonna have to explore this from the, from the standpoint of time. Um, if I want to talk about despondency, which ended up being a really providential thing because as I was reading through um, sources by people like Evagrius Ponticus, who's this fourth century desert monastic, and and he's kind of the point person for talking about spiritual, the sort of uh, traditional categories of spiritual sickness or sin, of which despondency is one. Um, when I was like, reading the sources, I was like, oh, um, the time, time really does come into play here. He would talk about monks, monks with despondency really, um, being bored, like bored with their lives. And they, they try to, they try to read a a spiritual book and it's, it's like, so monotonous like their life is just tedious and they're like flipping through the pages trying to find something that catches their eye or that they can like sink their teeth into it but nothing nothing feels purposeful and so they like they chuck the book aside and then they sit by the window staring out into the desert and waiting for something to entertain them but even that's boring so they have to like follow as- they have to try and sleep in the middle of the day just to break up the tedium, um, and it it seemed to me that oh one of the things they're really struggling with is the ability to like fully embody time as whole creatures and their they're, they're like their minds their anxious restless minds which evagris also talks about is like parceling out time into these really truncated moments that feel that feel endless in a bad way and tedious and monotonous and, and like a prison. Mm. Um, Evagrius talks about despondency as like an, an antipathy towards like the monastic cell or like the spatial surroundings of monks. So like a monk will feel um, sort of imprisoned in their cell. But I think also like that it's not just a spatial sense of imprisonment it's it's a temporal sense of imprisonment they their their cell is really kind of a metaphor for like their present circumstance their present moment and so i wrote my book kind of revisiting a, a lot of his writings and um and like some of the writings of saint John cassian who sort of followed in Evagrius's footsteps um and other other sort of traditional writers on the topic of despondency and tried to try to sort of um speak to a lot of what they were saying but but for a more modern audience who might not mm-hmm. resonate with all of these monastic references and um a monastic way of life and point out the connection with with time which i think so many of us can relate to and all of that was before covid uh and now <laughs> now co- i think covid just like blew the i don't know the top off <laughs> The box of like it just like i think all of us had been because we're all human and we're all sort of stuck in this 21st century on we um of existence but like COVID just pulled the curtain pack and was like yeah we all really suck at living in time um and this is an extreme situation but it's just turning the volume up on the like restlessness and agitation and existential futility we have always sort of try to avoid yeah um so I've, I've heard from some people who like only came across a book since covid and they're like this really speaks to what i'm feeling and i'm like great because i could not have possibly <laughs> foreseen any of this yeah when i was first writing the book
1: <laughs> yeah well I, I would imagine covid in a sense uh gave that book a second life um not not that not that it ever stopped but like you know that period was a milestone for people where you you look what happened before and you look at what happened after and all of us are different in some way uh as a result. Our our lives were I, I hope so forever changed during a period like that. For better or for worse.
3: For better or for worse, but I hope at least I hope we've all at least come away with some some new point of self-awareness or empathy or or something, you know, that I I, I really truly believe that that I was actually like, kind of thinking about this during liturgy today, like, just really hoping that 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 has changed us all, at least on some level for the better, even those of us who also had really difficult experiences during COVID. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things, um, you know, we were talking about was monastic relationships to to time and uh despondency and and all of that but you you're also talking about how it's kind of a universal thing i can't help but think though about the creatives the writers the artists uh we all we all know the trope of the tortured artist and Mm -hmm. um (laughs) you know so I don't. I don't know. It's, in fact, there, there's a podcast I really like called the Creative Coping Podcast, and
3: oh, I've never heard of that.
1: Yeah, it's it's an entire podcast about creative types and how they deal with the difficulties of life uh, through the expre- through personal expression and art or or whatever it may be. So I'm curious why, um, and I want to use a phrase you use: trauma informed creativity coaching. Can you tell me a little bit about that and why why are why are creatives, um, so why do creatives seem so prone to this sort of difficult uh... so, like
3: self destruction and like <laughs> like bad coping mechanisms? Yes, or, sorry, not bad. <laughs> um, insufficient coping mechanisms. Sure. Um. Uh. Yeah. So sort of like bridge these two parts of the conversation time and despondency and then like yeah um some of what i'm some of what i'm doing now because time and despondency the book came out i don't know 2017 2018 which in which in pandemic terms is like a century ago sure um <laughs> so um but yeah so i i started um as as like a a job i started freelance writing coaching all the way back in 2013, so a long time ago. And I was actually still doing my doctoral work. I have, as I mentioned, I am hyper vigilant with regard to time. And that makes Mm -hmm. me apparently it makes me sort of an organized person. People tell me I'm organized. I don't feel (laughs) organized, Um, but I have a knack for, you know, planning and and breaking things down and getting things done and, and breaking things down into like bite sized chunks or whatever and following through so i i would have like these requests of people who didn't feel they were gifted in that way to work with me on big writing projects like books as kind of a coach accountability partner etc to help them follow through and bring their book to completion so i started doing that and very soon into that started noticing and i this is this story is an answer to your question so sure very soon into that i I started noticing kind of a pattern. Um, And that was that I often had clients coming to me, like the people who would approach me to work with me were often people who were writing about really difficult things. Some of them were writing memoirs about traumatic or very wounding experiences in their lives, or they were like academic historians writing about traumatic events in history or racism, like history of racism and race relations um, as people of color or something like writing about really difficult things that even if they were like research based, had some personal bearing on how they thought about themselves in the world. Yeah. Um, And they'd come to me and be like, "Okay, well, I'm writing this really difficult book. But I what I what I really struggle with is productivity and time management, and I'm lazy, and I can't get this book written, and can you help me? And I'd I'd be thinking, yeah, it's no wonder you can't get this book written. It's because, like, this is really hard. Or they were going through really hard stuff while writing, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, having to leave abusive relationships or like estrangement issues with relatives and stuff. And it's like, but I'm really lazy. And can you help me be less lazy? And it's like, <laughs> no, actually it's, it's natural to not be hyper productive when you're right. thinking about or dealing actively dealing with really, really deep, difficult stuff. And um, after seeing this pattern enough, I, I kind of, I, I, was like really hungry for skills. Like, how can I, how can I broach, you know, how can I enter into deeper conversations with these folks in a way that's safe? And I don't wanna open up a can of worms that I don't really know how to help them deal with their process. Yeah. I myself was going through like some really difficult life stuff and, um, and, and even some traumas myself and having to like take a look at traumas I've suffered even long ago in my life and how those were playing out in the present. And do my own healing in the area of trauma. And I started realizing that this is something I want to be more aware of professionally. Um, and so I did my certification in trauma-informed coaching. And although I, I work more broadly with trauma survivors of all different kinds, I have sort of a special sub, subsection of my clients who are I offer creativity coaching specifically okay. to them around projects and so what I'm able to do there now is like when stuff is going on to to, to court to integrate that into the struggles that the person might be having yeah. with regard to creative output whether it's visual artists or writers or, or what have you poets um and able to help them under like sort of able to walk alongside them as they figure out what creativity means to them and what, what purpose creativity serves for them. I think a lot of us use, a lot of us who are, who are creative, like sort of we're, we're highly creative in the sense that we're, we're writing books, we're writing songs, we're writing, uh, we're, we're, we're creating stuff for a public audience in some capacity. Right. We can, the temptation is to use that creativity as almost as a coping mechanism. Um, so we use things like the number of books we publish in a year or a decade um, to feel safe, to feel good about ourselves, to feel that if, if, if we could just reach this level of creative output or this quality or this caliber or do this collaboration with this person or work with this publisher or whatever, then, then we'll be safe. Then we'll have what we need. Um, and we keep working towards that and tune out from the signals that our bodies are sending us, um, or avoid dealing with our memories or things like that, um, in order to reach that point. And it's like, there's not any more, a lot of times there's not more safety in those points. We're just, we just don't yet have we haven't yet been given the opportunity or the safe space to slow down and look at the things that we're running away from with creativity. Mm. Um, and and I, I find that, that helping clients hold space for those things can at first result in sort of a slowdown and a falling apart or like, things get a little messy and they're not quite sure where they're going anymore, but often it they're able to build back up and, and begin creating again from a deeper place, a place that's more self-aware, mm-hmm. a place that's like they're creating not only from their minds, but from their whole selves, including their bodies. Um, And they're creating in a way that's safer for themselves. They're not just like, pursuing their goals in this machine like way where they're totally tuning out from their needs. It's a really long answer to your question, but, um, that's kind of like where, what I hope, what I'm like aiming at when I'm working with my client in my
0: creative mm-hmm. coaching. That I mean, I think that's just such a holistic view, like to be able to like, kind of, you know, take care of the whole person instead of just one aspect, you know, you mm-hmm. know,
3: and it's a it's a it's an approach to creativity and to working with people in whatever professional setting you're in that you can apply even if the person hasn't been through capital T trauma, right. mm-hmm. um, or doesn't wanna go there, there or whatever. It's a way of you can use the trauma informed approach with anybody.
0: Well that's what I anticipated. Yeah. It was like one of the episodes of your podcast where you were talking about um, you know, what trauma is and how, you know there was one person who you know almost got hit by a car and you know it was mm-hmm. super traumatic and then the other person got in a car wreck it was like you know near-death experience but had this new zest for life and I mean mm-hmm. I think that was very informative because it's it's easy for us sometimes as humans to be like you know why are you tripping off that that's not that big of a deal but like it had right impact on them and it For me, it makes me step back and be like, you know, I need to have just a little bit more like compassion for this person and try to just kind of um, take myself out of it, you know?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I like to tell people there are no traumatic events. There are only traumatic experiences. And it's because any most of like the vast majority of events, everyone experiences differently and there's no rule of thumb to say this event will for sure be a trauma for anyone experiencing it. It it depends on how you as a unique person with your unique little calendar inside, how you interface with that event and perceive that event and experience that event.
1: Right. And I think one of the things that stands out to me is that like trauma is... You know, we can we can abstract it to some extent, but really, when it comes to dealing with something people have gone through, uh, abstractions kind of fall by the side. Mm-hmm. And you know, you yourself have experienced traumatic things that that you've you've shared that you're a survivor of of some pretty complex traumas from the past. Um, mm-hmm. But that this is something that is uh, you know a way of life for you that that healing and recovery is something that uh, is possible, but it's an ongoing process in a sense. I'm curious uh, if you could take us into that, but in light of being able to have conversations with people um, about their own pain. And I'm, I'm curious how that might impact you and affect your own uh, healing and, and recovery.
3: Um okay can you narrow the que- I
1: so I I I'm I'm asking question
3: is very broad
1: <laughs> Well I am asking specifically like are are there some ways that you have found healing in opening yourself up to others mm. and being able to to w- walk with others in their experiences
3: Yeah so um so being able to share you know, being able to disclose experiences with others is a really big. What, being able to disclose experiences in safe context with others who can be trusted is a really important part of of trauma healing. Um, and 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 that is easier said than done. Um, for me, um, um, having having people in my life who can hear my experiences um, even when stuff is coming up in the present like um, triggers or flashbacks or just things that remind me in unpleasant ways of the past. Being able to say even in the moment yeah wow this this is bringing up like difficult feelings or memories and not take it personally or not take it not minimize it or think I'm yeah. making it up or or whatever, has has probably been one of the most um, healing things for me. And I think, you know, I, I think it's it's worth recognizing that when someone shares things like that, or especially when they just closed for a first time, that this um, this thing happened to me, or yeah. I'm I'm being abused in this way, or this thing happened to me when I was a child um those moments are are very very important and if we react to them by being shocked like shocked in like a disgusted way
0: Mm.
3: or dismissive or oh but that person that person couldn't have probably didn't mean it like that um kind of minimizing things that that we can be sort of ca- bringing as much trauma, if not more, um, into their experience as the initial event. Yeah. So our, our responses are really important. And so I just, one thing that I try to do is just never be shocked any- uh, anymore. Sure. I, you know, I, I just, and like my own experiences, but also just hearing enough from people, I'm just not shocked anymore. Um, by what people tell me and even, and I I try to reserve judgment. So even if what someone's telling me seems a little far fetched or maybe they're trying to get attention or something, it's like, well, that's a thing too. If they really need attention and they're willing to like go to this length to bring something up. Sure. Like maybe that's a need for them right now. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna judge them in that moment or try to psychoanalyze them or, or something like that. I just, I'm going to be here and help them bear witness. Yeah. You know, just be a witness bearer to what mm. they're going through. And times for me that have been like the most, um, the most healing have been when somebody that I love and feel close to and trust, if I, when I share an experience or a memory that's painful for me and they, And they just share my pain. They have tears in their eyes or they just, they don't have to say anything. They don't feel the need to say anything or respond or explain away or, or even like make, try and make me feel better because they recognize, wow, that's not, that's not a pain that will ever go away necessarily. And there's nothing that you can say to make it go away. It's not okay. Um, but to just not be afraid to enter that space with me. Yeah. um, And like be in like that discomfort, awkward space. Um, I've always struggled with like, what does it mean that God is present, that God allows suffering and is present with us in that? Like when you think about some trauma experiences, that seems really messed up. Like things like incest or just, different like abuse and stuff it's like why and like mm. why would god just like s- stand by and and like watch with me as it happens like that's messed up mm. um and i can't explain that away for people who've actually been yeah. you know in those kinds of situations but what i can say is that for for me for the things that i've been through having someone Who just is not afraid to cry with me or be be with me in my suffering. I I kind of like can start to wrap my mind around how powerful it is that Christ is with us in our suffering. It's like it's um it's it's like a really disarming thing that like completely obliterates shame, all shame, like shame about. shame about things you've experienced shame about just being a human being when someone can just stand with you in your point of suffering it's like wow this is what it means to like to to love one another you know this Mm -hmm. is what it means to like the, the deepest form of love is when you can stand in someone's suffering with them or even for them you know um Again, a really long answer, but but that I think that's like that is the thing I aspire to. I aspire yeah. to be that person for others that I've had a few, like a select few people in my life be yeah. for me um, because there's nothing more healing than that.
1: Well, I can't think of a more perfect answer to that. Um, and you, you spoke to not only everything I asked about, but you actually answered several other things I had, follow-up questions I had in my mind. You just, it's like you read them and you just ticked them off and went through them.
3: (laughs) Well, I did read them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well,
1: I I had additional ones beyond the ones that were written. uh, Because as you were talking, I mean, it was making me think of other things. But um, I think that's actually a a perfect segue for me to ask you to tell us about your current book project. Um, Yeah. And, and yeah we'll so this is there. something
3: i'm i'm only like i have it's not official and that i have not submitted it anywhere or whatever because it's a slow burn this is gonna be a slow <laughs> are we all- oh, probably not allowed to swear on this uh, podcast oh you, you um, can
1: say all the words on this podcast
3: low ass burn
1: But it builds
3: um Anyway, um, it's a slow burn because I need to take my time, and it's a hard topic, and, um, and and it's personal, and and all of that. But the like the tentative working title, which probably will change when and if I ever find a publisher and, and like actually bring it to completion, is remembering all these things: um, a theology of trauma from the Christian East, and it's my it's my like modest little effort to um to write a theology of trauma from an orthodox perspective and contribute something to like the evolving conversation about trauma in theology because um according to some i'm I'm not totally sure i would agree but according to some trauma presents a challenge for the project of theology in that it forces us to like kind of what i was saying before like it's it's the age old question of theodicy and and why how or why God allows evil, but in a in a much more pointed way because tra- trauma is a very intimate form of suffering. Um, de- depending on the kind of trauma you're talking to, we mean when we say God, you know, God doesn't want us to suffer trauma, but He allows it, and He sort of in like this allowing it is is reminiscent of many traumatic situations where there's a perpetrator but then there's the people around the Mm. perpetrator who knowing about the abuse or whatever it is allow it and enable it yeah and so what does it mean when we say well god doesn't sort of inflict evil on us but he allows it oh so god's an enabler or he's you know he's a bystander um a passive witness um so so trauma and that that's just one example but many are you know many have have stated like that, that trauma presents this challenge for for theology and there's there's an emerging um discourse in in sort of the field theology of trauma um where theolo- theologians are trying to address that and one of my favorites is Shelley Rambo um there's another one Diane Langberg those are probably my two favorites they've they've offered a lot to think about um but they're both writing from very western perspectives like western christian protestant perspectives and they have lots to say and a lot of it is really valuable but when i'm reading theologies of trauma i often just feel like there's a gap here there's mm-hmm. there, like if we could bring, if we could widen the perspective here and bring in um, eastern christian perspectives on what it means to be human what what it what actual suffering can like um you know what christian suffering is versus like the suffering that that comes about because of of brokenness and spiritual sickness in in our world um and orthodox concepts of salvation there's a whole bunch of things where i feel like if we could just like plug in some orthodox things here and sort of broaden the conversation I feel like it it could really serve as a corrective mm-hmm. yeah for people out there who are who are like well I I'm a Christian or I was raised Christian and then I had this trauma or I was raped or um this you know my my husband was abusive or whatever and i don't know how to bridge that anymore yeah. with what i was told about god growing up yeah um i am i would hope you know to kind of uh bridge that gap
1: i guess yeah. oh i'm i'm really excited to hear that um i i hope that your slow burn um really catches fire soon because uh because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds amazing um now in the meantime would would you, is there anything you've read recently on depression or trauma that you could maybe recommend to a listener that, that might be worth checking out?
3: Yeah, so for people who um, have actually, you know, struggled with trauma or are, you know, are struggling with kind of the imprint and fallout of trauma, um, so two sort of entry-level books that I recommend. The first is... I always get the title wrong. Hang on. What happened to you by, wait for it, Oprah and oh, Dr. Wow. Something. I forget the doctor's name. She wrote it with an actual medical professional. Okay. And I, I put off reading this for a long, they wrote it during COVID, which, so oh. it passes like kind of the COVID test um, of like <laughs> reading things that are like, now this is totally irrelevant since the pandemic. But right. Um, yeah, it's called what happened to you? And I, I always mistake the title and refer to it as what's wrong with you, (laughs) (laughs) which is, which is Uh, pathologizing trauma. But anyway, it's a great, it's a great, great, great entry level um, discussion into sort of trauma and its impact on our lives. It's also a great book. If if you already know a lot about trauma, um, just to kind of come back to, and it's very reflective and, and easy to digest. And I also recommend the book anchored, by Deb Dana, which talks a lot about what to do with some um, the sort of bodily imprint of trauma. This kind of like I think what Nomadic was referring to before, how his wife sometimes will not even remember what what day it is or something. She just knows she's really struggling, and then she'll realize, oh, this is that's why this is happening. Is it's sure. it's a certain day or an anniversary that it her body her body contains that that yeah. grief. You know, so the book Anchored by Deb Dana is good, um, as well as The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel uh, van der Kolk. Um, for for people more on the theology side who are like wanting to, to somehow start to integrate um, what they've experienced with the reality, you know, who God is and what suffering is Diane Langberg um, has a book. I think it's called "Suffering in the Heart of God."
1: Okay, um, heard of that.
3: Yeah, and and that's that's something I I usually steer steer people to. It's and I don't agree with absolutely everything in there, but overall, it's a really it's a book that you'll read and be like, "This, th- I want to keep this book close." Yeah. Sure, <laughs> um,
1: sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. And, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, you know, share your website or, or any socials, what, where can people find what you want them to find?
3: So, um, on the social media side of things, I'm most active these days on Instagram and my handle is at Nicole Rokas. My last name is R-O-C-C-A-S. If people are kind of listening to some of this and like, wow, I think, um, I think I'm struggling with some of this. I'd like to talk to her about about what I'm going through, maybe set up an appointment or something. Sure. The best thing to do is to schedule a free consultation, which you can do on my website, um, www.nicolerokus.com. And and if you put slash coaching, it will take you right to my coaching page where you'll find a button to schedule a free consultation. It's just a free like 30 to 45 minute informal conversation. No pressure at all. Not an obligation. Um, Just to find out if if trauma-informed coaching might be a good fit for you. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I I have my podcast, Time Eternal. I'm not super active on it. But um, I do have a series on there called Time and Trauma from last year around this time that um, people have said is is pretty helpful in understanding trauma and, and sort of finding out what to do if they are struggling with it. I think that's it.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you joining us. Uh gosh, we covered some good material and I almost feel like we could have you back just to talk history even. Uh there's so <laughs> many things, so many pathways we could have gone down. So very yeah, thankful I to know. have
0: you join us.
3: Thank you. you oh, ever sorry. need
0: um, you know, if you're gonna end up doing audio books and you need some you know, some people to read some audiobooks for you, were.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: That would be terrible if we were <laughs> narrating With, uh, with her some bolts. rap interludes. If I ever
3: need some rap interludes between my chapters, I know
0: who to call. <laughs> you could do some beatboxing underneath, you know, just for the sake.
3: Yeah. That's
0: right. <laughs> we would bring the flavor.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: Um. Well, I wanted to say thank you and also thank you for like, just I don't know. I'm like a very multifaceted person and and I feel like it's it's hard sometimes it's hard to be on podcasts cuz I feel like I've got to like stick to one topic or whatever and um I I really like that we can kind of jump between topics and just go where the conversation goes I I really enjoyed that and um yeah thanks for having me on
0: Well
1: so did we thank you Yeah boy Man, that was such a good conversation. I'm so glad we got to take the time to talk to Nicole and to ask her some of those tough questions. Agreed,
0: agreed. I enjoyed it too. Uh, we hope you really enjoyed it. Um, go ahead and give us a follow on Bruce Beards on Instagram. I'm at Nomadic Vagabond, Nomadic with a K, on Instagram, and of course Royal Ruckus Official on Instagram. And there's a new video that dropped. Y'all should have checked it out. Hopefully, you tapped into the live stream and. Got anything to drop, my man? Yeah,
1: um, yeah, just definitely if you haven't checked out the video, youtubecom Royal Ruckus has uh, the latest video, and the new EP is going to d- drop January 21st, uh, 2023. Mm-hmm. So, definitely if you haven't had a chance to check out the single, check it out on YouTube or on the platform of your choice add it to your spotify playlist share it at your next bar mitzvah you know that's right just play it all so we appreciate you joining us uh we will be back soon with more titillating conversations about brews and beards and shipwrecks Peace. peace peace
2: Not you, shipwreck. Hey, love, Bo. Not you, shipwreck. Hey, love, boat, Not you, shipwreck. Hey, love, shipwreck. Hey, love I'm walking in the club like not you, shipwreck.
1: Man, that was a great conversation. I'm so glad uh, we got to take the time to talk to Nicole. It was deep, just like the
0: oceans on the shipwrecks.
1: (laughs) That's that's right. And if you enjoyed that, uh, no, let let me just start all this over. Let me just start all this over. I'm going to say that was great. You just respond with something, transition into the socials, and then I'll wrap it up. Sorry.